Hey y'all, this is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. This season, I will be discussing murders from the year 2000 through 2009. Today's story is of a male murderer from 2002. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to the year 2002. The popular show, The Wire, started in 2002. Celebrity couple, Freddie Prince Jr. and Sarah Michelle Gellar married in 2002. They are still together and have two kids. Another thing that happened in 2002 was a man walking into a law firm carrying a cardboard box. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. Riyad Morgan and Quinn Incorporated is a personal injury law firm out of Beaumont, Texas, known for their specialty with asbestos cases. In 2003, President Bush's attempt to curb medical malpractice and class action lawsuits failed, and Congress's effort to put a limit on asbestos damages also collapsed. One of the partners at the firm, Wayne Riyad, who made a billion on the Texas Gulf Coast suing oil companies for asbestos exposure, was quoted saying, We're the first generation to approach the law from an entrepreneurial perspective. It used to be that a lawyer would win one big case and then buy a thousand acres in West Texas and watch his cows grow. But we were the first to put our winnings back into the next case. That made it possible to do a lot of things that hadn't been done before. To trial lawyers, corporations are the incarnation of evil, directed by amoral men who use their power to get away with enormous crimes. This may seem like a harsh blanket statement, but trial lawyers also encounter corporate America in a way that few other individuals ever do, through its legal departments. Corporate defense attorneys usually use a tactic that wears down opponents, filing motion after motion and challenging every single aspect of the case before anything ever goes to trial. Through most of the history of product liability and other tort cases, the plaintiff bar has been completely outgunned by corporate treasuries. But now, that has changed, because they are now able to match corporate giants through long litigation. As trial lawyers have themselves become masters at bankrupting opponents, although not necessarily to their advantage, since bankruptcy leaves less money for their fees. Actually, more than 60 major companies have been put in Chapter 11 by asbestos litigation. Corporations generally file Chapter 11 if they require time to restructure their debts. This version of bankruptcy gives the debtor a fresh start. But is any kind of easing hostility possible between corporations and trial lawyers? According to an article on this subject, the peace can start between these two if corporate America admits that injury lawyers are a permanent and acceptable part of the economic landscape. Damages paid in many legal settlements serve a distinct purpose in buying improvements in health and safety that would not be possible through any other channels. 
refineries, shipyards, rubber plants, and tank farms are among those who work with the most dangerous and toxic chemicals. Due to this, East Texas lawyers have taken hundreds of millions of dollars from asbestos makers and pipe manufacturers. And when those started to dry up, they joined in lawsuits against tobacco companies, diet pill makers, and basically anywhere there was a fight to be had because suing was one of Beaumont's biggest industries. Lawyers hold a unique position in Beaumont. Outsiders accuse them of feeding the frenzy of huge class action lawsuits that have become commonplace in the last few decades. That same article stated that lawyers need to recognize that the system now rewards those who file first with the best lawyers. Like one Texas jury who had recently awarded $200 million to an oil field worker who feared he had suffered lung damage, even though he had no visible impairments. While legitimate asbestos victims with real claims are now filing against bankrupt companies and are only receiving less than 10 cents on the dollar for their damages. The reason for the high payout is somewhat because lawyers realize the higher the price, the more recognition they would get in newspapers. But this ultimately hurts everyone and lawyers need to remember that corporate America is not indestructible. But there are such cases like when Toshiba was sued over faulty disk drives and they ended up having to pay a settlement of $2.1 billion, Riyadh, Morgan, and Quinn Incorporated represented this lawsuit and put what was left over, about $360 million, into a charity, which goes to help those affected most. So when Richard Gerzen walked into the law office of Rayad Morgan and Quinn, where Chris Quinn, who was known as one of the most honorable of his profession, did many free cases and never turned his back on a legitimate client, made sure this was a reliable claim. Richard Gerzen, 79, believed he had a case, so he went to file an asbestos claim. He was initially signed up as a client, but was later dropped because the medical reports were not conducive to asbestos litigation. Richard became very angry when he was informed that the firm would not be taking on his case. Personal injury lawyer Chris Quinn explained that the doctor they sent Richard to couldn't find anything wrong. But Richard kept insisting he was sick. I know I got it, he said. He became quite angry about that and left. The law firm believed this matter to be over until the morning of June 13, 2002, when Richard Gerzen walked into the lobby holding a cardboard box and asked to speak with Chris Quinn. Quinn came out to meet Richard and escorted him back to his office. Once there, Richard took a gun out of the box where it had been hiding and shot Quinn twice in the chest. Lawyer Trent Bond, who was in the neighboring office, ran over after hearing the shots and subdued Richard until the police got there. Once police arrived, Garzin explained of chest pains and was taken to Herman Memorial Baptist Hospital for blood tests. After leaving the hospital, he was charged with murder and booked into the Jefferson County Jail. His bond was set at 750000 but he stayed in jail until his trial in January 
Chris Quinn was 47 at the time of his death. He was a senior partner at the firm with 20 years experience. He was married to Becky Quinn and they had five children together, ranging in ages from four to 14. Quinn graduated from Westchester High School in Houston and then went on to attend Baylor University in Waco, Texas, where he was an academic All-American football player. He lettered at defensive end from 1974 through 1976. Also, in 1974, Quinn and his fellow Bears won the Southwest Conference Championship and became the first Baylor team to play in the Cotton Bowl, but they eventually lost to Penn State. Quinn graduated in 1978 and then went on to earn a Baylor Law degree in 1980. After this, Quinn clerked for federal judge William Steger and Tyler for two years before beginning his practice in Beaumont. After his death, Steger made a statement saying he fondly remembers Quinn as a vibrant young man who helped him, not just on the bench, but through tough times, stating, I had lost my only son, Reed, who had died in a scuba diving accident in April of 2002, and he was quite a comfort to me during that grieving period that I had. He was an outstanding young man. Fellow attorney John Eddie Williams, who also went to Baylor, talked about Quinn to the Beaumont Enterprise, explaining how Quinn was in the courtroom. Some trial lawyers are very aggressive and mean, but not Chris. He would beat you because he would out-prepare you, but he would do it in a nice, kind way. Along with being a lawyer, Quinn was also active as a coach and officer of the Beaumont Youth Soccer League, where he was known to be mowing the lawn and watering the fields. He also raised money for the Catholic Church and the American Cancer Society. Upon hearing of Chris Quinn's death, more than 500 people attended a June 14th memorial service for Quinn at St. Anthony Cathedral in Beaumont. And an even larger number of mourners were present for a funeral mass the following day. I would like to introduce you to Julie Castro. She is a home baker and owner of Timeless Creations by Julie, where she specializes in personalized and delicious decorated cookies, cakes, cupcakes, and many other desserts. You can find her on Instagram and Facebook. And mention my podcast and you'll receive 15% off. While in jail, Richard gave an off-camera jailhouse interview to KBTV. In this interview, he explained that he had been planning this attack for months, calling the killing justifiable homicide. It took me two months to decide if I was going to kill him. It's a hard decision to make. It took about a month to put together. Remember, I live in a nursing home. I think I did a good job. He also stated, I'm the victim here. Richard admitted he didn't believe his plan for vengeance would succeed against the law firm. I didn't think I was going to get the gun. Never thought it would work. If it didn't work, I was going to give up. That would have been my last chance. I left it up to fate. The reason Richard didn't expect to get a gun was because he had a criminal record dating back to 1939. He had three armed robbery convictions and even served time in California at Folsom State Prison in the 1950s. Under federal law, one is ineligible to purchase a gun if they are felons, 
fugitives, drug addicts, or the mentally ill. Illegal immigrants, those with dishonorable military discharges, residents who renounce their citizenship, people under domestic violence restraining orders, and anyone convicted of a domestic violence misdemeanor are also ineligible. Yet, Richard got a gun. He went into the orange pawn shop where he browsed before deciding on a used Mossberg model 500A 12-gauge shotgun with a pistol grip. He chose the specific gun because he needed the shorter shotgun with a pistol grip so that he could fit it into the small, plain box. He didn't want to draw attention to himself when he entered the law firm. So Richard filled out the required government paperwork and paid $187 for the weapon. And since the background check failed, Richard, a convicted felon, got to walk out of the pawn shop with a gun. They shouldn't have happened for obvious reasons. But also, there are laws and regulations in place to protect guns from getting into the wrong hands. It is known as NICS, the FBI's National Instant Criminal Background Check System, which started operating in 1998. Five years earlier, Congress had passed the Brady Bill, which requires federally licensed gun dealers to perform those checks. The system relies largely on state criminal history records, and many states conduct their own background checks in addition to using the FBI's system, but Texas doesn't. The FBI reported that its NICS system denied 199,720 attempted firearm purchases from November 1998 to October 2001. But the exchange of information is definitely flawed. Before May of 1998, if a local arresting agency in Texas sent two conviction records to the Texas Department of Public Safety, the department would generally only forward one to the FBI. If the arresting agency only sent one record, the Public Safety Department would retain it and not forward a copy. Since 1998, the department has made a practice of making all information available to the FBI if the card is legible, that is. Public safety officials are working to automate older records. The Brady Act allows law enforcement agencies three business days to complete a background check. If it's not completed within that time, the purchase goes through by default. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms gets involved if the FBI denies someone's purchase request or if a gun goes to someone who ultimately is ineligible. We'll get that referral and our first priority is to go out and get the gun, said Jim Crandall, a program manager in public affairs for the Bureau. Physically, we'll have our agents go out and track down this person. We'll get the gun. But again, this didn't happen in the case of Richard Jerzan. They had an entire month before the shooting to catch him and get the gun, but they failed Chris Quinn and his family tremendously. As to whether the system works or not, I wish it were even more effective than it is, Crandall said. It's done a tremendous job. I would guess that sometimes something like this slips through. One month later, 
on June 13, 2002, Richard Gerzen traveled the nine miles from the nursing home to downtown Beaumont on the senior citizen shuttle van. After being dropped off just before 9 a.m., he walked to the law firm to use that gun to get his anger out on Chris Quinn. Six months later, he was representing himself and was assigned lawyer Sony Cribs to assist if needed. The official charge was murder by a repeat felony murder. Included in the indictment was a felony conviction of attempted robbery by assault in October 1968 in Harris County. This is an important distinction because it bumps up the minimum sentence to 10 more years. The sentence with this charge means Richard could get a minimum of 15 years or up to a maximum of 99 years, or he could be sentenced to life in prison. In the closing arguments, Prosecutor Shettle asked jurors to tell the community by the swiftness of justice in this case, tell the Quinn family that you've learned to like Chris Quinn. Shettle also called Gerzen a mean, mean, old coward. Gerzen rocked in his chair and smiled during Shettle's comments. He seemed completely unfazed by the court proceedings. Defense attorney Cribs did not give a closing argument. What am I going to argue? This was the guilt-innocence phase, and he didn't deny it, Cribs said after the verdict was read. Fifteen minutes is all it took for the jury to come back with a guilty verdict. Shettle said that he had never had such a quick verdict in such a serious case. A few days later, the jury took 30 minutes to decide Richard Gerzen's punishment. He was sentenced to life in prison and had to pay a fine of $10,000. Cribs said this case was the hardest case he ever had to try. Richard Gerzen's life sentence ended quickly as he died just two years later, in 2005. People who knew him said he was mad most all the time. One of the senior citizen shuttle van drivers, J.D., said Richard was always mad about something, and he thought somebody owed him something. It later came out that an advertising firm in Dallas had recruited Gerzen, and they had told him he had had asbestos damage. These advertising firms that file fraudulent asbestos cases don't have a bigger enemy in the world than me, Wayne Riad said grimly after hearing this information. But Chris Quinn lives on in the memories of his family, friends, and community. Matt Pace, who was the best man at Quinn's wedding, stated, If you talk to anyone, they'll tell you he's the finest human beings you ever met. We were saying that before he died. On August 14, 2007, the soccer fields where Quinn had coached changed his name from the Meadows Soccer Complex to the Chris Quinn Memorial Soccer Complex, his family stating that the soccer field will help to celebrate what the man loved in life rather than remind the community of the tragic circumstances of his death.
I want to say a huge thank you to the Beaumont Enterprise, newspapers.com, and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I will put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Please join me next week when we discuss a female murderer from the year 2003. If you are enjoying this podcast, I would love for you to hit the subscribe button. And if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at crimesofadecadepod and on Twitter at crimesofadecade.com.